Welcome to The Procurement Show. Hello and welcome to The Procurement Show, the show that tackles the topics we all need to think about and sets out to explore the more interesting bits of procurement. I'm Jonathan O'Brien. And I'm Paul Philpot, and my role is to make sure that the 2024 Jonathan O'Brien calendar is going to be yet another hit. Thank you. Just like last year's yes. was. This week, we're getting into how we can build responsible supply chains. As we know, when it comes to sustainable procurement, it is the supply chain that presents the biggest challenge, and none less than understanding if human rights are being upheld, especially when our supply chains extend to remote parts of the world where regulation or transparency are lacking. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organizations around the globe. So to help us understand this more and what we can do about it, today we're joined by a very special guest. He is best described as an artist, entrepreneur, humanitarian, and his work over the last two decades has awakened a global movement, helped improve laws on slavery and helped thousands of people to gain freedom. He's been a film director and a producer known for the critically acclaimed film Call and Response, produced a CNN documentary, is an accomplished author, and his titles include A Selfish Plan to Change the World. And over the years, he's founded a series of companies, each with a common theme, which is to help make the world more free. Today, he is the CEO and founder of a company called FRDM, pronounced Freedom, a software-as-a-service organization that transforms how companies can manage the most critical supply chain risks, such as child labor and forced labor in supply chains. They also help companies meet legislation and build brand loyalty. Oh, and if all of that wasn't enough, he holds an honorary doctorate from California State University. And I saw him speak at the DPW conference in Amsterdam recently and absolutely blew me away. I thought we need to get him on the show. So joining us now live from San Francisco, please welcome to The Procurement Show, Justin Dillon. Justin, hello. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us today. It took me a long while to write that introduction. I can imagine. It's taken one and a half pages of... (laughs) Yeah. I had to write all that down. Uh, For those of us who perhaps aren't watching the video version but listening, I just want to say you do actually look like a film director. You've got the film director kind of like look about you, I think. Yeah, I carry that. Whatever I can do to spice up procurement, that's my job. Yeah, well, that's what we're all here to do. Absolutely. I think most notable in your long LinkedIn profile was the fact that you're someone who has genuinely helped change the world when it comes to human rights. And that's a very special thing. So we figured you're the best person to ask where we are today in terms of that. And if we rewind back to where this started, so 1948 was when the idea of agreeing human rights became a thing. I wanted to try and understand what's happened over the last 75 years since then. And are we going in the right direction? So Justin, summarize the current situation in terms of global human rights. Wow, we could do a few podcasts on that. I've really focused the last 15 years of my life around modern-day slavery, child labor, and where when it it arrested my life. At the time when I started learning about it, I was actually a professional musician and read an article in the New York Times about the issue. And it was one of those things where As with a lot of difficult things that we read about in the news, we kind of don't know where to put it. It arrests our heart. Mm -hmm. It almost disrupts our lives a little bit because there's just nothing we feel like we can do about it. Mm -hmm. We've got five different issues right now in any of our newspapers that I'm sure bother all of us, but we don't know how to help. And I think that dissonance that goes inside of us of like, 
I want to help, but I can't. That really, as an artist, uh, as an entrepreneur, that really kind of captured my attention. It's like, well, what if we could? What if there was a way for us to address some of these issues? And really, when you think about modern day slavery, 15 years ago, no one was talking about it. Mm -hmm. Now there's laws in most countries regarding it. I think that's remarkable progress. Mm, yes. When I started working on this, there was zero laws. I got to be a part of helping pass a very small part here in California, helping pass the first supply chain law in regards to human rights here in California under Governor Schwarzenegger. And I will say that, you know, if you want to try to track progress over time, you do have to be patient. And 14 years, 15 years to get to a point where this is no longer just something that we feel pity about, but it actually affects profits. I think that's an enormous accomplishment. And of course, legislative changes don't happen overnight, do they? It takes no. time. And I guess this whole subject has implications for our supply chains. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot on the show about similar issues. We've covered how we tackle key risks such as child labour that we just touched on, forced labour, poor working conditions, discrimination. Yeah. But it feels like until recently, the big companies, perhaps they haven't had to worry too much about all this. They don't need to look at their supply chains in so much detail. Or maybe it's a situation that they just didn't know. Yeah. What's changed? What's the situation that we're in now? And why is there having to be such a radical change in attitude? I run a company and I can't solve all the world's problems. I have one major problem I have to solve, which is grow my company, right? So I empathize. It doesn't matter what size company you're in or you're running or operating in, you do have to run the company. And so problems that are not necessarily yours, while they may affect you personally, how they affect you professionally is something altogether different. And so I understand that I empathize with that. Where the laws, the regulations, and even the trade compliance laws have matured over the last 10 years is essentially telling companies that whether or not you can see it, you are responsible for it. And whether or not human rights abuses are happening in your tier one or your tier N, you have a responsibility to address it. Now, the laws are strategically vague. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are no best practices. Our customers and the companies we talk to are looking to the left and the right and going, well, who, who can we match and who can we do exactly? The reality is we're at the very beginning of a sea change around transparency and supply chains. And I, for one, actually believe that we as procurement are going to become one of the most important functions inside the business, not only from an operational standpoint of being able to reduce costs and risks. I'll tell you, when I was running charities, yeah around human rights. We would go to all of these meetings and we would go to the UN and we would go meet with all the CEOs and there'd be the CEO of Exxon there and there would be the you know leader of some nation that we all get together and we all talk. And the whole idea was how can we get more money to end slavery? And what we figured out back at the napkin at that time is about $150 million was being raised a year across the globe to address mm -hmm child labor and forced labor. That's governments giving, that's individuals, that's soccer moms, you name it, giving money to fight. We also estimated that there was about $150 billion, billion in profits being made off of forced labor every year. Wow. So that's $150 million against $150 billion. I wow. think that is why procurement is involved. Yeah. Because now we get to use our buying power as a superpower to make supply chains more transparent, 
to make them more ethical and quite frankly, more in line with what our marketing and ESG claims are on the fronts of our websites. We don't have to spend money to make change. We just have to use the money we're spending to create more systemic yeah, change. Yeah. Those are some big audiences that you've had to talk to yeah, about absolutely. that subject. Did you get any points of frustration in order to get the conversation going and get the points across? Heaps. <laughs> yeah, but I will say everyone wants to see things change, but yeah. they have limitations for what they can do. And that goes for government as well, right? And I remember years ago, the Obama administration asked my organization to create something similar to carbon footprint, but for slavery. They said, let's create a slavery footprint calculator, which sounds awful. And let's see if we can get consumers involved. And we worked together. Actually, Google got involved and helped as well. And the whole point of it, was just to help consumers understand, had nothing to do with brands, what's going on behind them. And again, it was quite frankly an experiment. The question really was, will anyone care? Will anyone show yeah. up? Is there a market there? We wanted to reach 150,000 people. We ended up reaching about 35 million wow. people with this campaign. <clears throat> what's important, and let me just give you kind of the ecology of change there. That was a small little campaign with a nonprofit and a government. What that did is that led the president to go, hmm, this is an issue people care about. Maybe I should do something. Mm. I'm going to pass an executive order. What's the executive order? I remember the White House contacted me. They're like, yeah, we want to pass an executive order. Awesome. Great. What are you going to do? Oh, we're going to change a loophole in a tariff act from the 1930s. I'm like, that sounds like a non-event. Mm. Why would that have anything to do with it? Well, there was a loophole that allowed for the importation of slave make goods into the US and we're going to close that loophole. It sounded like a non-event and it was for years. Today, that closing of that loophole has resulted in $2 billion worth of goods seized at the border, suspected to be made with forced labor coming into the United States. Wow, that's so incredible. These small changes, these things that we can do in procurement, these things, they have immense impact over time. And I'm absolutely with you when we talk about procurement being right there in the spotlight for many different reasons. And, you know, this is one of them. And we've got to lead the change here. And I think one of the things that interests me is if we're going to do that, we've got to understand our supply chains. We've got to understand everything about our supply chains, which are the ones that we should focus on, what happens in them, where does the stuff happen? And most of the companies I work with really struggle just to have that understanding, just to even know how their supply chains are structured, especially when you have intermediaries that kind of hide stuff away from you. The Procurement Show, exploring the more interesting bits about procurement. And now... The Procurement Fun Fact. This edition's exciting tale of preposterous procurement, bizarre buying, or simply saucy sourcing. To embrace the true potential of AI, this week, while I was struggling to find the Procurement Fun Fact, I decided to ask ChatGPT to give me some fun facts about people in procurement. I can say okay. it is the first time <laughs> I've encountered a null response from ChatGPT. <laughs> so I asked it again using a slightly different question uh, and this is what it told me it said and this is genuine from chat GPT and tell me about fun facts about people in procurement the world runs on coffee and so does procurement we can't espresso how important this contract is professionals professionals try again procurement professionals secretly harbour a love for office supplies and my personal favourite after a long day of negotiations, procurement professionals tend to find solace in the therapeutic act of comparing prices at the grocery store. Which all goes to show that ChatGPT doesn't do humour yet, and that either AI or procurement have some way to go when it comes to fun. 
Good. The Procurement Fun Fact. Contact us by email. Hello at theprocurementshow.com. Send us a tweet at Procurement Show or connect with us on LinkedIn. Search for The Procurement Show. If we're going to do this, how do we begin to understand and measure what's happening in our supply chain? What can we do? Well, it's similar to therapy. You're going to have to look at some truths about yourself already, which I would say most companies have to recognize the fact that we don't manage data very well. Yeah, It's not a matter of can we find things. It's a matter of how are we keeping our own house in order? Do we have 15 ERPs that we're struggling? Do we have departments that are hiding data? All the, some of that is just being able to look at internally and going, do we even know what we're buying? <laughs> Before we can start looking at where are we connected to Western China and our supply chain somewhere, which is becoming increasingly yeah. important for lots of reasons beyond just human rights, do we even know where our first tier suppliers are located? Yeah, yeah. And quite frankly, being honest with that and starting there and being okay with that and looking at that, the number one thing that I, when running campaigns and doing nonprofit work and campaign work, the number one thing I saw that was an obstacle was the inability to celebrate progress, even when it doesn't seem like anything's been done. Understanding your first tier suppliers, where they're connected, cleaning up that data, that's progress. Enhancing that, with additional data, some of which we provide as freedom, and being able to start mapping and federating that, that's also progress. But for our customers that have been working with us for a while, they're really starting to get gritty on, okay, we really want to make some impact. We want to start canceling some contracts. We need evidence to be able to do this. We need to do that internally because that follows our values, but also the government's requiring us to do that. So impact will follow, but at first it's just really about just taking the first step forward and starting to federate data. It's all very well saying collect the data and analyse it, but in so many situations, we actually don't collect any data full stop. There are no channels of communications, there's no ways of collecting it, in particular when it comes to things like remote suppliers, you know, that's perhaps further located away from the organisation. That's going to be a particular challenge. Unless, say, for example, not just for collecting data, but also looking at their practices, there's a huge element of trust. Unless you can actually go there, visit them, you're relying upon them executing your standards standards of Mm -hmm. care and attention and your standards of green policy, you have to rely on some kind of questionnaire approach. How can we really see what is happening in the supply chain and beyond without just relying on a questionnaire response? Is there any way that your platform can help open our eyes? Well, I think we have to think of audits and questionnaires as lagging indicators, meaning it's what has already happened, what you can prove up to date. It's not really taking advantage of the leading indicators that really, quite frankly, what we do here in California and Silicon Valley is about being able to predict and analyze and see what's happening now and in the future. It's hard to get people to change. It's hard to get industries to change. We've been relying on questionnaires and audits for decades, but we now have this new thing called data maybe a little bit of AI to be able to start filling in gaps. And that's really where freedom starts. When I wanted to start this company, I went around to chief procurement officers and said, here's a problem I'm trying to solve. I actually think it's going to be great for business. Give me a minute. I actually want to address, help you find forced labor in your supply chain, use your spend power to be able to remediate it. I think it's going to be great for your brand. And I quite frankly think your business is going to operate better. Tell me what the obstacles are. The number one was, I can't get any information out of my suppliers. Like, okay, so that's a non-starter. If you're requiring your suppliers to give you information, you're already going down the wrong path. 
And sending them a questionnaire is only going to get you, if they respond, which less than 30% do, it's only going to give you the information that they want you to have. So how can you start to fill in the information around that? That's what Freedom does. We use your spend data to be able to determine who your suppliers are doing business with, where those suppliers operate in, what is the rule of law? Are there any infractions? Have there been any court reportings, court orders? We can pull, there's an enormous amount of information that can be spread across your supply chain. And you, let's say you've got 5,000 direct suppliers. Well, we're going to be monitoring probably 50,000 upstream indirect suppliers and running risk analyses on those. That's enough to get started. When we talk about getting the data that we need here, it seems that it's pretty easy in terms of the environmental data. You know, we can begin to measure things like water consumption and how much carbon is being produced in our supplies. You know, we can actually, the smart companies are sort of tapping into some of that data from real measurements. But it seems when yeah. it comes to people, human rights abuses, that's much harder to measure. So I'm really intrigued by what you've just said in terms of taking lots of different data sources and bringing those together. And not always the obvious ones. So what are the things that we have to look at to get that data about forced labor, child labor in our supply chains? Yeah. So when you're talking about human rights, you're talking about behavior, which yeah. doesn't have an emission trace that you can follow, mm -hmm. right? And so you've got to get really good at being able to read smoke, mm. not just fire. And that having an understanding of where the most likelihood, and that includes all the vulnerability industries that require vulnerable working groups, stateless groups. So that could be construction in a Gulf country. It could be housekeeping in Australia or landscaping in Australia. There's enough information out there to say this particular supplier that works in this industry in this particular geo has a higher or lower level amount of smoke. And so the, while that's predictive, in some cases you will find infractions where someone has been named in a case or the media and you can push in. And in those cases, it becomes a decision for the business of whether or not they're going to remove that supplier from that particular vertical. My point to customers is you're never going to be done and there's plenty to do right out of the gate. <laughs> Meaning mapping your supply chain is job number one. You have to federate data and there are ways to do it. That sounds like a huge task. It's actually, it's not three or four years ago, very, very difficult to do. Now it's very possible to yeah. start mapping your watching. Yeah. What customers want to know is what do I do when I find all these challenges? I've got X amount of suppliers with connections to Western China yeah. that are strategic to me. What do I do? This is kind of where the activism and the entrepreneurialism comes together is you know, you're going to need to work with your suppliers. By the way, that risk to you from your supplier, that supplier is providing that risk to another buyer as well. So that starts to become where buyers and suppliers start to work together to remove that risk upstream. Relationships that the buyer might not have, but the supplier does. And so this kind of change is what I get very excited about because yeah. that sounds more like a movement just a solution. And one we can all get on board with. With the processing of so much data, hmm. obvious and not so obvious information you're sources. Mention, you're not going to mention. Yeah, I need not, to ask the question. Not, not the A word. How can AI help? There it is. There we are. There Sorry, is. yes. It's not a podcast if we don't bring up AI. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> yeah, AI can help at some point, I think, as in most applications. And look, I'm living in the, the epicenter of AI here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. We keep hearing how it's going to revitalize San Francisco. I believe it when I see it. <laughs> look, like any new advancement, it has huge opportunities to be able to speed up processes and help us think about how we can make changes to our supply chains better. Obviously, these need large data sets of which 
freedom certainly has. We've got billions of connections, but we haven't yet asked questions of this data set or how to do it better because we'd be asking on behalf of our customers. And this is really where it comes down to, you can have all the information in the world. You can have all the tools like AI in the world, Hmm. but at the end of it, what are you wanting or willing to do as a company with that information? And I think this really comes down to the core of who we are as businesses. Do we want to run better supply chains or are we good enough with good enough? Do we want to deploy technologies like AI to help us find better verticals, not just operationally, but from something that attaches to our values across all ESG risk factors? Are we willing to start getting on our toes and asking our supply chains, can you run scenarios that help me understand my supply chain if China invades Taiwan? Big topic this week. So there's plenty of technology AI can do it. The question is, what do you want to do? A really interesting answer, because it just seems that the answer to every question has been, oh, we can get AI to do that. We could plug AI to to sort that out. It's going to solve all the world's problems. Yeah, but as you quite rightly said, you need to know the brief, the objectives, yeah. what you actually want it to do and how in order to get it to That's do exactly it. right. I can go stand in front of a gym and talk about fitness all I want. It doesn't make me more fit by standing in front of the gym and looking at all of the gear. So that's so what I've been doing wrong all these years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I've got this vision of this single point of truth that you could look and say, what's happening in that supply chain right now? At that moment, you will see everything that is happening in that supply chain at that moment and can make the right decisions and help that inform your future intake system or whatever it might be. How far away are we from having that single point of truth dashboard for all of our supply chains, the entirety of the supply chains and everything that's happening at that very moment. I think within a few years of being able to know, at least in the formal sector. Now, here's where it gets crazy. There is no AI that can go into some drawer in Western China and look and read a receipt that hasn't been shared. So we have the informal sector in our supply chains, mostly agrarian, mining, you know, the conflict minerals movement and effort here is one that's very tricky because you're talking about artisanal mines And you've got all kinds of issues, not just human rights, but environmental as well. These are informal sectors. I don't know how we're going to be able to address those with technology. But keep in mind, while some of the most egregious violations and challenges of our Mm. time, the formal sector of being able to understand where a supply chain maps to, how far back. Currently, we can map your supply chain back to tier eight just by telling us who your direct supplier is. That is a quantum leap. Wow. It's too much data, to be quite honest. But- Customers like to have it. And what we try to tell customers is, hey, you don't even know the jobs you could do with this yet. Like you've never had this much data. And I think we need to start thinking about what are the types of things we want to solve for. And by the way, we're all about ROI. We're all about helping operational excellence, making money, saving money, and solving these big problems alongside of it. I don't believe that all of this technology, all of this data is going to be worth anything if procurement teams can't both save time, save reputation, save planet, save people. All of those have to be on the table for any proposal to work. It's time to Ask Jonathan. And today's Ask Jonathan comes from Amelia Svensson from Sweden. She writes, Dear Jonathan, I have read your book, Sustainable Procurement, which is really inspiring and helpful. 
Good yes. to know. Yeah. Yes. We are trying to implement sustainable procurement and finding it really difficult to understand what is happening in our supply chains. Can we use AI to help here? Another AI angle. Yeah, it is. And really topical given today's guest as well. Yes, but AI isn't going to suddenly make you understand what's happening in your supply chains. You know, as we've already learned, you've got to have some data to work with. You've mm. got to have something that you can begin to understand your supply chains. And AI is the bit that does the processing and can generate things, but it needs something to work with in the first place. And unless you're connected to those sources of information, it's not really going to do a lot to help you understand it. What it can do, once we can get the data in the first place, it can help you process it, it can help you fill in the gaps, it can help you figure out and make sense of what is actually happening. But this AI isn't a magic solution that's going to suddenly answer that question. What you've got to do is focus on where are the different information sources, where are the different bits of data that together you can build up that picture in terms of what's happening at your suppliers. And in terms of, as we're hearing today, the human rights violations that mm. happen within the supply chain as well. So you've got to start with that data. And once you've got all the different sources of data, you can begin to use AI to make sense of it. And what we forget is that AI tends to have a data cutoff date, it, as it were. Yes. The models were based on data available up to a certain date. Best yeah. before date, yeah. and unless you've got access to live data, hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we all assume that OpenAI, ChatGPT, mm. is what everyone's talking about. There are other different types of AI engine that can do that, that perhaps are less open in terms of using your data and having to upload your data to some sort of common site. Remember, it's learning all the time; it's sucking all the data that you give it every single time, and that is a problem if we're then going to want it to work on commercially sensitive data that's unique to our organisation. So we have to be able to do that in some sort of wall-gardened environment, perhaps using a different AI tool that mm. sits in the cloud that only we can access. Very good point. A very good question, Amelia. If you have a question that you'd like to ask Jonathan, here's how to get in touch. Ask Jonathan. Email your question to jonathan at theprocurementshow.com. You might be part of the next show. The Procurement Show. The latest thinking, the greatest insights. You quite rightly said save the planet there. Obviously, we use the term sustainable procurement and it comes in many different ways. Can these methodologies help us make decisions with regards to sustainable procurement? Like, for example, we know that when it comes to caring for the environment, the big companies, they have no little choice. Otherwise, they fail to comply with the relevant legislation or the relevant criteria. Resources run out, things get scarce, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to people in the supply chain, it feels like today companies can exercise more choice. They can look around, they yes. can think outside the box they can decide how much they want to care yeah, i guess it, or indeed it's almost like care. do you want to make the world a better place mm. for all of the people or just the ones that matter that's the question it feels like companies ask sometimes. absolutely is that fair and if so what are the implications i think you have to put a profit motive in any decision you make electric vehicles were incredibly uncool 15 years ago now they're very cool yeah is the world a better place because of it 100 percent did people's social currency go up here where I live in California when everyone was driving Teslas? 100%. So you can't just have a pure altruistic motive in order to create change. You can't. It's wonderful to look at. We love to talk about it. We create conferences around it. It doesn't move the needle. Mm. Until you are creating benefit on both sides of the balance sheet, and you can also do something that's going to protect people and planet, unless you can create solutions that are actually going to do both, you're just going to be circling the wagons and not really accomplishing much. So I believe that's an exciting space to be in. Yeah. I believe supply chain transparency, 
creates operational benefits and it makes it bad for nefarious actors and supply chains to make money. That's a win-win to me. That's a brilliant answer. It's actually quite interesting that both the examples you've given there were based on sociological validation or social responses and opinions that may come down to the end consumer. Yeah. Look, I've been studying consumers around this issue for years. Consumers are super interested in issues that affect the world, but they're also interested in how they are being seen. In other words, it's very, very difficult to buy expensive products that are ecologically and ethically made. Ecologically responsible and ethical, right? This is a very small market, and it's usually people who have larger discretionary funds to be able to buy the same thing that's more expensive. I don't think you can create change by just making it an elitist issue. It has to be something that all of us can participate in. And the thing that I chase with freedom is I want, you know, family members of mine who are wonderful, amazing human beings who don't have a lot of money and who would absolutely like to participate in the marketplace and making the world a better place for kids, but they're not going to buy fair trade chocolate, can't afford it. Mm. Until we start to solve that problem and give everyone the opportunity to buy from a company that is not perfect, but more transparent and getting more transparent over time and expects their suppliers to do the same. I think we can see a movement in the consumer side, but it has to be simple and it has to be accessible to all. So if I'm a CPO, I'm new to the organization and I'm tasked with driving sustainability, the company's very clear we're about profit, people, planet. We've got a triple bottom line approach happening in the organization, but no idea, little idea what's actually happening with our global supply chains. And we know that they extend to many underdeveloped countries. So that's what I'm faced with, which is what many CPOs find themselves in that position today. Where do I start? What do I do in the first 100 days? What's the first thing? Obviously, we're going to sign up for the Freedom Platform. That's the first Mm -hmm. thing we're going to do. But then what? Look, we're learning as we go. I'd love to say that we've just figured this out. We learn from our customers. We learn what blockers they have internally behind departments. The thing that I'm telling companies today is, let's take the first 100 days or maybe the first year and just map and see what we can know. Let's not worry about fixing all the problems right out of the gate. If you're a company that's operating in Canada, you've got until May to be able to do such because Canada has a new law that says you've got to you know, do X, Y, and Z in regards to forced labor and child labor in your supply chains. There's plenty of regulatory pressure to make this a priority, but let's calm down first and just see you cannot manage what you don't measure. So let's start measuring. Let's look at what's possible. Second behind that is... Yep, let's start getting all the regulatory reporting going because, by the way, you're going to have to do this every year. And these due diligence reports require you to get better. So let's just divorce ourselves from the idea that we can be perfect out of the gate, even though I know that's what everyone wants to be. And just think about how can we get better and better every year? How can our transparency go up? How can our suppliers become more aware of our values and demonstrate that? Let's build a five-year plan internally that we as partners are going to build towards transparency, responsibility that is empirical and not just a veneer around sustainability. I believe we're moving into a new movement where transparency is driving sustainability and ethics with empiricism, not placards and not goals that no one's mm-hmm. going to be around to see. Yeah. When I sit down with CPOs or VPs, it's like, let's just not talk about our year subscription. Let's talk about what we want to accomplish over the next five years and what kind of legacy that's going to leave for this company and how you get to lead. And when the follow-up question is like, what about companies who don't want to do anything and just want to hide? But I don't know. I haven't met them. They don't come to us. What do you do when an organization within your supply chain doesn't want to come on board with all this? And you have limited alternative options. 
Yeah, it's a tough call, especially when mm. it's a strategic supplier, yeah. right? Fortunately, the thing I try to tell and arm our customers with to understand themselves, but also understand for suppliers is it's this little pithy phrase, whether or not you as a company are interested in transparency, transparency is interested in you. Mm-hmm. Meaning governments, NGOs, and media might know more about your supply chain than you do. And if you're approaching this being on your heels, while it might not hurt you this quarter, you're putting your company at risk, you're putting your brand at risk, and you're putting, in some cases, your imports at risk by not getting on your toes and getting ahead of this. And that's how all of these laws are designed. So get off your heels, get on your toes, have the humility to know you're not going to know everything right out of the gate, and just get started. So if you could change just one thing, one thing that would make a big leap forward in making supply chains over the world more free, what would it be? You've got one wish, and I'm the genie. Yeah, one wish. I would make transparency as important as ESG. Okay. I would make having transparent supply chains a force multiplier for all the values that we purport and create goals around. 80% of carbon emissions for a company are in their supply chain. The reason that's not talked about is because it's for all the reasons we've been talking on this podcast, it's hard to manage your supply chain. Yeah. But we've got this incredible opportunity to be able to create systemic change in our supply chains just through the power of our procurement spend. So I would like to see the wave of the wand would be make transparency something we can measure and we value. And as that starts to become one of the factors when we do deals, when I buy from you as a buyer and you're a supplier, I want to know how transparent your supply chain is because your transparency is my transparency. You do know you're going to get some resistance, don't you, to absolute transparency? Because there'll be organizations that will fear that absolute transparency will, for example, reveal certain elements of their IP. But yeah, I mean, bring it on because, you know, those are the things we've got to confront. I think if you buy something, you have the price, you have how much carbon's burnt, you have how transparent it is. You should have those three tags. That's a good idea. Almost like when you buy a chocolate bar, it gives you the nutritional value and other foods as well. And how much forced labor or child labor went Mm. into that? Hopefully there's a big zero. And how much carbon? You know, you should be able to make those decisions and the price of it should be comparable. So you don't have to pay more for that. It becomes the ticket to the ballpark, I think. Mm. I agree. I think if you're playing, I'm still trying to hide my supply chain and hide my supply chain data. You've got a cold war played. So you've had one wish Mm -hmm. and hopefully one of these days, Jonathan will be able to grant that one wish. He says he's a genie. I don't know where I have to rub him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a fan of a supply chain known as the takeaway. And and I like to have three takeaways Mm. because I'm greedy like that. So may I ask you, what are your three takeaways, please? I would start with this. Most people are good. One of my funders for one of the nonprofits I did was the founder of eBay. And he would bring us together ever so often. Pyramid ER. And one of the things that I remember him telling all of us was when they were starting eBay, Keep in mind, this is early days of internet. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to somehow convince people that putting your credit card online <laughs> yes. was something you can do, right? Like some people don't remember, like if you're old enough, it's like, we just get in cars and houses with people now. But like at the time, you know, putting your credit card online was like a big deal, much less buying something from someone you've never met, such a huge behavior. But in order to create this, what became, you know, just I'd literally changed the world in the way that we do commerce, You had to start with the philosophy that most people are good. There are some that are bad, but more or less the system works such that most people are trustworthy. And I think that that's hard to believe today. 
it'd be very hard to start an eBay today and get people to believe that, mm -hmm. that most people are good, given just the rage algorithms that are serving up our information. So I would look at your supply chain and go, most of your suppliers are good. They want the same things that you want. Being able to build transparency is going to require that we believe that and not treat suppliers with this guilty until proven innocent type of mentality. That is not an approach that's going to work. It's not going to help your business. It's not going to help the world. So that's the first takeaway. Mm. Most people are good. Mm -hmm. The second takeaway is you have to start with just measuring before you can solve anything. So measure before you manage. Invest in understanding what's in your supply chain. And if you're believing that, oh, I don't want to find anything I don't want to know about, you're already behind. You're on your yeah. heels. You're operating from a Cold War playbook. So measure first. And then the third is celebrate. Yeah. We have to look at this as a long journey. It's never over. Transparency and supply chains is an art as much as it is a science. It's never done. Supply chains don't stay still. Risk doesn't stay still so we can catch it with our questionnaires. Can we just get off this idea in the Cold War playbook of questionnaires and audits and actually look and take advantage of what the world is offering us today to make not just operational excellence and our supply chains a reality, but get this, we can use the money we're already spending. I was chasing $150 million <laughs> hmm. to try to change the world. There's over $100 billion being managed on freedom alone, and we're just one company. That's yeah. enormous. That's incredible. Right? Yeah. So recognize that we can use the spend that we have to create an enormous amount of change. And for any procurement leader listening out there, I just want you to know that the torch has been handed to you. Yeah. If you think the sustainability ESG has the torch? No, it's yours. You can take and you can spend differently. You can turn your buying power to superpower and create change that you can tell your kids and grandkids about. Those windows of opportunity have never come to procurement before and they probably never will again. This is your moment. It is the golden moment and brilliant three takeaways. Mm. So people are good, measure your supply base and celebrate. Justin Dillon, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been inspirational to listen to you. Absolutely, and, uh, yes. I can't wait to see what happens to Freedom next. Pleasure, thank you. You've been listening to The Procurement Show. Contact us by email, hello at theprocurementshow.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn, search for The Procurement Show, and on Twitter, at Procurement Show. Visit us at theprocurementshow.com. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organizations around the globe. Copyright Positive Purchasing, all rights reserved. Produced by Fresh Air Studios.